Hi, welcome to Unscripted by Twine. I'm Diana Rao, and I'm your host. In this podcast, my guests choose from a library of deep and thought-provoking questions, and we just talk about it for 15 or 20 minutes. Our hypothesis is that as long as we choose meaningful questions, we'll end up in a conversation worth having. As Carl Sagan says, we make our world significant by the courage of our questions and the depth of our answers. Ready? Let's go. Hi, welcome to Unscripted. So I am here with my friend, my new friend, Taylor, who I've never met before. Um, Taylor, welcome to Unscripted. Thank you for having me, Diana. <laughs> this is going to be a lot of fun, especially since you, some of the questions that uh, caught your eye are very, very interesting ones indeed. So we're just going to, let's just dive straight into it. You ready? Yep, let's go for it. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Well, so Okay, this first question is a heavy one, and I actually would love to know what compelled you to choose this, like what drew you to this question. Um, the specific question is just how has mental health or um, illness touched you or those that you care about? Yeah, so part of the reason why I selected that question is because I'm a mental health professional. Um, and so talking about mental health is something that I do all day long. And that's, I mean, that's my life. Um, wow. And so I, I recently just finished my master's degree and I'm about to start a job um, working with young kids um, in kind of like an alter, like alternative education system. Um, and yeah, just the, the subject of mental health is something that has, always appealed to me for a really long time like even even when I was considering other career paths um, which I'm sure we'll talk about with some of these other questions that I selected mm -hmm. but when I was when I was looking at um, some of these you know different career paths like I kept on coming back to like okay well how does how does this benefit those people who are who are underserved in some way um, who who don't have access to resources, and as I kept on coming back to that, I mean, it was it was kind of this spiraling into this very specific field of counseling, and so that's that's kind of you know where I've landed, and it's it's a great you know it's a great fit, um, but there's also you know a personal side to it too that. Um, you know, I I have definitely had my fair share of depression and anxiety throughout my life, and I've seen that in a lot of my peers. And I also think I can bring something to the table to help alleviate that on some level. I can't make things go away, certainly, but being able to just be there in the room with someone else and really be there for them is something that really... Yeah, I mean, it's what gets me up in the morning. That's incredible. Um, what is your, I mean, you said that you've had your own fair share of depression and anxiety as well. Um, can you tell me more about how your personal experiences led you into the mental health space or into counseling or into the specific fields of study that you, you decided to take on and the practices you decided to take on? I know you know, the, the space of counseling, psychology, therapy is so broad and there are so many different types uh, of which I'm not an expert on any of them. So you're the expert here for sure. 
So love to understand just how your experiences shaped the pathway that you chose professionally in the mental health counseling space. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, what actually really turned me on to pursuing psychology generally um, was a film that I watched called Short Term 12. I don't know if you've ever seen it, um, but it's, no. about, it's about a um, woman who I assume is a social worker. It's never actually um, clarified what her, what her professional role is, but she is in charge of a halfway house for um, people who are transitioning from one foster home to another. And um, it, it's a very just like beautiful, raw story um, about this woman who's helping people while she's going through her own stuff. And that really just awoke in me this desire to share in the struggles of life with other people. Um, that, you know, in my own, in my own professional practice, it's a really big deal to me to be able to say like, Hey, like we're all going through really tough stuff together. I mean, right now we've got this pandemic that's going on and a lot of my professional work right now is centered on that. Like, Hey, we're all going through this pandemic together. Yeah. Um, and that, that became really, um, really important as I started on this path, um, within the realm of LGBT issues. So I identify as bisexual and a lot of my peers around, around this time were dealing with some really challenging cultural things. This was right around the time that um, gay marriage was legalized in the States. And so there was a rise in discrimination around that time. And so there was a lot of, a lot of very prominent issues that were coming to the forefront of, of the queer experience. And so that's, that's, I think the kind of like big thing that I'm really digging my, digging my fingers into right now is trying to figure out like how, how to help queer people in America cope with everyday struggles. And so, and I've experienced those myself. I mean, bisexuality, we only, have, we only have, you know, a half hour or whatever. So I can't give you the whole lecture here, but like <laughs> we, <laughs> bisexual people are in a unique place where they don't really have, um, they don't really have a place in the queer community and don't really have a place in the straight cisgender community either. And so there's, there's discrimination on all, on all sides. And so I've been caught up in that and trying to figure out for myself, like, okay, like, how do I deal with this? And as I've been figuring that out, the follow, the follow-up question has been, okay, now how do I teach this to other people? How do I share what I've learned? How do I start a conversation? How do I amplify the voices of those around me? Wow. Um, just wow. Okay. So, so, so much to dig into there. When you say, how do I share what I've learned? What is it? I, I mean, this is definitely a, a, 
a heftier conversation that we can cover in 30 minutes for sure. But yeah, can you share a little, yeah do you mind, David, do you mind sharing a little bit about what you have learned and what you're trying to translate over to, you know, all audiences that might be able to learn from some of the struggles and trials and tribulations and challenges that you've, you've faced or you've seen your community face um, or even of, uh, of folks that you've worked with? Yeah, so I think that the the common thread across all of the work that I've done with various communities, um, like like I said, right now I'm working with kids, like I'm not working with queer people right now, but um, the common thread that runs through everything is, uh, is the importance of community, um, the importance of not just like communities existing, but people being more community minded than I think they often are. We go mm. through the day, um, we, we get up, we're like, okay, like I'm hungry. I got to go get, you know, got to go get food. I got to get dressed. And it's all about, you know, me, me, me. And I don't mean to like sound like this, you know, crazy old dude or whatever, who's, you know, complaining about the youth or whatever, but like we are so self-centered and there, there's a place for that. They're absolutely like, we need to get our needs met. Um, and also there is something to be said for the power of community where being able to look at the community and say, okay, what can I do for us? What can we do for the health of our neighborhoods, for the health of our state, for our country, for our, um, for our ethnic group. Like what, what can I do for this group health? And being able to, as I've been turned on to that, and as I've seen other people get turned on to that, I've seen that there's this reciprocal process of the individual nourishing the community, but then the community nourishing the individual. And so when we have particularly these marginalized communities, like the queer community, I mean, really, like the queer communities that I have been part of have been such a great example to me for how to come together and suffer together and celebrate together. And as they're going through that process, they as individuals are able to get their own personal needs met in a way that they couldn't do just fighting for themselves on their own. Mm, wow. So in terms of, I mean, this is such a relevant topic for a time like this when mm -hmm. we're looking at, right? When, when it's, so, so I actually, I'm, I wonder about this. Do you have any recommendations for what, you know, anyone listening, what we, we can do for our communities? Um, all these communities that mentioned, whether it's the health of our neighborhood, our state, our country, specifically during you know, COVID time. And then also, I'd love to know your thoughts on beyond just particular practices that you've discovered or uh, think, you know, someone who says, I do want to do that. I do want to nourish my community. How, where do you start? Yeah. Um, one, one thing that I want to point out is that this, this pandemic situation really offers us an opportunity to have a blueprint for how we should be living our lives generally that you know we, we talk about this idea of a new normal or like things going back to normal but like why don't we just live our best life now under these really hard times and then apply that to hard times that happen that are not pandemic related so one of the you know getting into like actual like 
actionable things. Um, I think that the biggest thing is to acknowledge the communities that we're all a part of, um, that as individuals, we look around and we say, okay, like I'm in a neighborhood and what, you know, what organizations are happening on a neighborhood level or on a cultural level or on a national level? Like what are these different communities that I intersect with and what's happening with them right now? And ask ourselves, like, okay, like, what, how are these groups functioning? And looking for ways that they're functioning well, look for ways that they're not functioning so well. And ask yourself, like, what, what can I bring to the table here? Um, and I, I want to backtrack a little bit and say that that shouldn't come at the expense of self-care. Um, even though I am very community-oriented and think you should give your all to your community, like, also take care of yourself. Um, feel free to take a break, take, you know, take a deep breath, go for a walk, turn off the internet and read a book, like do whatever you need to do to reset. And then the next day, like get up and ask yourself, okay, like what, what connections can I make today? And what, not only what connections can I make from myself to someone else, but what connections between others can I help forge? I mean, this this platform, Twine, is a great example of somebody trying to go and help form connections with other people. And I'm a huge believer in that. Mm, that's incredible. I mean, yeah, this is, I, I, I love the perspective that you bring into just thinking about your neighborhood. As you were speaking, I was thinking about my neighborhood and I was thinking about my complex and thinking, I, I love the tactics of just what's functioning well, not functioning well and noticing the minutia. I think I have sort of like a silly random example, but you just made me think of, um, we have this uh, this sort of like small dog park area where you can bring your dogs to do their business. And you know how it sometimes you see all the dog poop that other owners leave behind and then you're just like, gosh, what horrible people, who does this? But actually, it's funny when you look at it from your perspective of what's functioning well, what's not functioning well, maybe there's just, you know, sometimes an act of kindness, like picking up the dog poop that is not your dog poop and throwing it away for the community's sake or something, something seemingly micro like that um, to foster, you know, community in whatever small ways that we can uh, during these times. So I, I really like, I love the way you think about this. And, you know, Taylor, it's, it's such a funny thing because we've never talked before. And now that I know you're a mental health professional, I have like 400 million questions. Um, <laughs> so many, so many. Me and too. I'm torn. I know. I just have, I so many. Well, so if you have any questions, feel free to jump in. I have a lot. And then we also have some more questions to go through. Um, I, I think one, one thing, indulge me. Would you indulge me for like just one second? Because there's something that's super top of mind that's come up in many twine conversations, actually, that I, I, I think might be um, valuable to just get your perspective on. Uh, and it has to do with depression. Do you mind if we go into depression for just a second? Yep, absolutely. Okay. Um, so the question has to do with, it has to do with, um, you know, many of us, whether it's oh, we're struggling with depression or whether it's a family member or a friend, uh, are familiar with what depression is like within our, our you know, our world and our realms. For somebody who has never experienced depression but does have a friend or family member um, who, you know, who suffers from depression, do you, what do you recommend in terms of just being 
thoughtful and present and and like what what do you have any best practices for supporting uh, a loved one who is who is depressed especially during these times when it's a little harder to be present for them um, or be physically present I should say uh, for them how can we best support our loved ones who are suffering from depression from afar yeah absolutely um so the the biggest thing that comes to mind there there's two things that are kind of interconnected um and they they both sound kind of trite but bear with me here the the first thing is just to listen um i i think that sometimes we forget what the power of listening looks like and like what what it can do for someone um for example right now something that i'm doing in what little spare time i have is um, I, I'm on a um, kind of a crisis hotline that's related to the COVID-19 situation where people call in and they're like, man, like I just lost my job or like I'm scared of getting sick. And like 95% of the calls that come through this hotline are just people saying like, hey man, I'm scared. And they ramble about being scared for 30 minutes and we just sit there and we provide constant affirmation saying like, yeah, like this is scary. This is, this is a really worrying time. And like, it's okay to be sad and it's okay that you don't wanna get out of bed some mornings. And just by providing that affirmation of saying like, it's okay, it's okay that you feel that way. That really is the best kind of support that you can provide for someone. And connected to that is the idea of compassion. Um, that compassion is, there's a, there's a wonderful quote. I can't remember who said it. It's in a book I read once. Um, but they said that compassion is patience in the present. Where when you think mm. about patience, you're, you're thinking in the future. You're thinking, okay, someday this will get good. Someday I'll get what I want. Someday this bad thing will go away. But compassion and self-compassion is patience in the now saying, you know what? This isn't going very well right now. The world is falling apart. We've got a pandemic. There's wildfires. There's, I just read a headline about murder bees or something. Like all of, all of these crazy things are happening. And that sucks. And also it's okay. It, like right now, like mm -hmm. in this moment, like things are hard and it's okay that they're hard. And being able to provide that kind of perspective when, like it, in conjunction with listening, not instead of listening, being able to help provide that to people who are struggling with depression and saying like, man, like you're going through really tough stuff right now and that's okay. I'm gonna be here with you. That, that mm. I mean, is the most powerful thing that somebody dealing with depression can experience. And honestly, that's what we as therapists do. Like, we don't have, we don't wave a magic wand and get rid of your depression. Like, that's all we're doing. And it's something that anyone can do. Wow. Okay. Um, wow. I'm floored. That's incredible, Taylor. Thank you so much for sharing that with, uh, with me, with us. It's just, super valuable what you just said I, I wrote it down like 14 times man you're going through uh what you're going through is really tough right now and I'm going to be here with you it just is hits me at my core thank you for that 
Um, thank you for going on that tangent. So bringing it back to uh, a couple of the questions that you chose, I found this one was really interesting, given your work, especially, and the impact that you're making in the world. Oh, also, quick question. What was that crisis hotline that you, um, you're working with? Is that something anyone can volunteer for? Or um, can I, so it's, it's specific to New York State. I don't know. Okay. Um, it's if you just Google like New York State Emotional Support Helpline, um, you'll be able to find it. And I don't know what the process is like for regular people signing up for it. I kind of had like a an inside track, I guess you could say. I, it was referred to me by a colleague who works for the hotline. So I don't know what the volunteer situation looks like, but I'm sure that people in the New York area could look it up and find out. Okay, amazing. I will list it inside the notes on this episode, and then also that way, if anyone is looking for that hotline, they can also reach out through the hotline. Um, yeah, and any, right. any, anybody can call in. Anybody can call in. Like, I talked to somebody in Iowa um, this yeah. last weekend. Yeah. That's great. Okay, that's great to know. Um, okay, so here's a hardball question Go for it. <laughs> that you chose. So do you feel you've wasted your potential or lived up to it? Yeah, so when I um when I very first put down that question, I think I had a different perspective on it than I do now. Um because mm. I've had some time to think about it. Uh, and it, I think that you know, we need to talk about like what it like potential for what, you know? Like potential for greatness, potential for uh to make a lot of money, like I think that that there's a lot of interpretation for that and Honestly, like, as I sit here now, I can pretty comfortably say, like, sure, I've wasted my potential in certain areas, but not others. For example, um, growing up, I um, really wanted to be a professional musician. That was something that in my high school years that I wanted to be a composer. I wanted to be a film composer specifically. Um, and... I had some things that happened in life that nudged me away from that. And I've actually really been nudged pretty far from that. I mean, I've been engaged in mental health work for five years now, total um, paraprofessional and professional. And I don't really have time for music anymore. And so there's part of me that like feels that loss of like, wow, like I, I could have spent that five years getting really good at composing and I could probably have a composing job right now and I don't and that makes me a little sad but it's also okay because I have stoked other fires that, mm. that have panned out really well and really at the end of the day this is this is something that was brought to my attention the other day that somebody asked me a very similar question um, it actually, the question was like, if you had 500 years to live, like what things would you work on? Um, what, what skills mm. would you develop? Ooh, and, I love that oh, I, it's, a, it's such a great question. And I came up with this huge long list of things that I would love to be able to do. And then at the end, I thought, you know what, all I really care about is being able to converse with people and being able to be good at holding a conversation. If you can't tell, I tend to ramble a bit, and this is this is a weakness I'm working on. Um, and so, 
being able to hold a good conversation with people is really, I think, a core value for me. And I'm in the perfect field for figuring that out and learning how to do it with the not 500 years that I have uh, on the earth. I love that. Oh, my gosh, I love that. Yeah, go ahead. I don't feel like I've wasted my potential at all because that is a core value to me is being able to learn how to talk to people in a meaningful way. And I'm in the perfect field for that. You are, you are in the most, like the most perfect field. In many ways, it's actually a field that um, I used to dream of being in. Psychology was uh, for years, I think it was probably middle school and high school, early high school, my dream career. Um, and so it's, yeah, I love hearing you talk about Hey, man, about I this. had a classmate in her 70s. You still got time. <laughs> I got time. I have 500 years to pick up the skills I want to work on. Um, <laughs> okay, so Taylor, as we start coming into time, I want to give a little space also. I know you had some questions on your mind for you to throw anything you want at me, because I know if you value conversation, then back and forth is part of what makes for a great conversation. So I don't, I don't want to um, dominate the entire time that we have. So in the last five minutes, why don't you take over? Tell me, what, what are you thinking? What questions pop into mind for you? Yeah, the biggest question that's coming to mind for me um, related to our conversation on particularly like dealing with pandemic situation, like I, I talked about community a lot and I, I'm getting really good at talking about community but I'm wondering what thoughts you might have on how do we build these communities? How do we take a community that is maybe not functioning so well, like, I don't know, your, your apartment complex or whatever, like, how do we take an existing community and breathe life into it? Yeah. Hmm. So many thoughts on this. And I love the way you talk about community. It was super insightful for me to hear. So, I think the way I think about breathing life into communities that are fragmented is um, for whatever reason, whether it's Western culture or uh, social standards or whatever, I, I think of us all as sort of when we're kids, we're very much, cu- we're curious, we're full of wonder, we're going out and saying, hey, tell me about you. But then along the way, you know, in high school, you ask someone a deep question like, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like who, you know, what are your dreams? And someone laughs at you and says, that's a dumb question. Like, I don't have, what are you talking about? And all of a sudden you start, like we build up these shells over time, layers and layers and layers. And eventually we grow into these full grown adults with giant armor, like just layers on layers of armor. And then more stuff happens. You go to work, you find out like it's not HR compliant. It talk about politics. You learn like all this stuff. So more shells and more shells to the point where um, the only thing that's acceptable is like, literally walking past someone in the street and maybe smiling, uh, maybe like making mm-hmm. eye contact, but not always, because that might also be come off as creepy. You know, you just never know. So there's all, there's so many things that get in the way of us having true authentic connections. And I think if you want to breathe life into a community, if you want to breathe life into communities that are fragmented specifically, it's about um, figuring out how to architect permissions to break down those walls. And mm-hmm. so creating spaces where it's, it's all like twine really is just a space where people have permission to have deep conversations people have permission like everyone has permission to dive straight into the questions 
There's no, uh, you don't need to have that small talk. Um, when I host dinners, so I, I, I love hosting like this just random salon dinner series that I'll just do whenever I drop into a city for friends and strangers, but it's, it's highly facilitated around breaking down those norms so that we can dive straight into meaningful interaction. And mm -hmm. I think that's the same thing also with when you join a group to go volunteering to pick up stuff on the beach, you're looking for a collaborative activity that breaks down your normal boundaries to actually say, oh, I, I don't, you know, it's not about selling something to you. It's not about, you know, some transaction that usually, you know, necessitates communication. It's just like you and me picking up trash together and maybe talking about like our kids or our lives or our dogs. I don't know. Like, so there's just something about, um, I think to, to really bring together fragmented communities, it's really about being creative with uh, giving permission to engage and being very clear about what good can look like and setting up almost a new set of, um, I don't want to say rules, but a new set of modes of conduct, standards of behavior. And I think similar, like we can see the similar kind of effects happening in social media. So I, I thought a lot about this when it came down to designing like a digital community. And in particular, when you look at platforms like Facebook or Instagram, or all these platforms, you can see the values on which they were built, right? So it's very clearly in the way they've been used. And so, mm -hmm. right, so you can understand clearly what community meant to the founders of platforms like that. Um, and I mean, Facebook, let's just use that as an example, originally built for Mark Zuckerberg trying to get a date, right? Because he couldn't get one. And mm -hmm. so it was about having hot women in a date. So all this stuff, like the feed and the photos and the likes and the comments and the, and the um, fueling of, of the good feelings and all those things like that, that was designed that's by design and so i think part of it is this is like far from your question but when we think about communities then fragmented communities in the digital world and how to create healthy communities that's a whole nother conversation around what are the values we're building these communities on and then how do we engineer and uh, build empathy and vulnerability and safety into these communities we're creating because like they literally will turn out like it'll become what you intend it to be and so i think the intention behind community building is also super important um and to that extent just i don't know there's um you know some people believe in just throwing people together in a room and they'll just have fun and figure things out uh there's a there's a woman priya park who wrote a book, book called uh the art of gathering and i think you know the one thing i really like from that book is she talks about how the host is responsible for everything that happens when people are in your room, your community. And to that extent, it's irresponsible to just like be like, oh, let me throw you, because everyone's coming in at different um, conversational competencies. Everyone's coming in with a different set of social norms for what they have permission to talk about and what they don't. So to break those down, I think as the host, as community leaders, we set new norms, right? We set new norms for our communities to be able to have those conversations. So in my apartment complex, it could be like, I don't know. There's lots of I have lots of crazy ideas for how that could work, um, but implementing them is a little bit more of a different thing. Maybe I'll just have them all come on twine for now. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Thanks for asking. That's a, that's a long answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, so there are three things I know that we're we're about at time here. I wanted to point out these three things that you talked about in here. The first one is that idea of permission, being able to just like have that space to break from the the norms of the way that we normally interact with others 
Um, the second thing that I pulled out of that was curiosity. Um, and that's something that I spend a lot of time reflecting on from like a clinical practice point of view, like kind of the advanced stages of coping with and managing depression involves a lot of curiosity, you know, being able to say mm. like, okay, like this is the way my life has been for X number of years. What else could it look like? And not only like engaging with, with that on like an existential level, but also an interpersonal level, being curious about others. And so that's the second thing that I pulled from that. And then the third thing is related to values, like being willing to shake up the ways that we, the, the underlying values and dynamics that guide the way that we interact with people. So you mentioned like Facebook and you mentioned transactions and kind of this transaction-based way of interacting with others. You know, you look at Facebook, for mm -hmm. example, you put up, you put up a picture, you get likes. There's this exchange of some sort of social currency Mm -hmm. But if we if we break away from that and say, okay, like we don't have to have a transaction based anything. We, mm -hmm. we can structure meaningful interactions with a different paradigm that can help us to create maybe not necessarily healthier communities, but different kinds of communities that may that may be more unified, that may be more cohesive. Mm, absolutely. And I think First of all, that when you synthesize everything, it sounds so much more coherent and <laughs> distinct when you just the way you just put it together. So thank you, Taylor, for synthesizing all this. Um, and and the thing I'll add on to that is coming back to identities. You you had talked about you know what it meant to be bisexual, what communities you belong to, and what communities you don't. I think when you look at um, the identities of those who create these systems that define what social norms we have, whether those are, you know, the Fortune 500 CEOs of which less than, I don't know, one, two percent are women, right? Um, or mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley, of which the most funded founders still, you know, heterosexual white men, uh, you, you really get an interesting view of, I think, what gets created. I think everything, when we think about, well, what's community like now? What community is like now has been defined by um, a set of creators or leaders that is not necessarily representative at all of our entire country or the world. And so Absolutely. as, right? And so all things are created in their image. Um, and so I think about this a lot, just in terms of, you know, not accepting things for how they are, and being curious about what it looks like. What if, what if it looked different? What if, what if I created a community based on my values, on my people, on my identity, on what I believe is right? What does that look like? And play that out and create it. That's, you know, that's what really, really excites me. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Well, Taylor, I'm so grateful for you. Thank you so much for jumping on and scripted with me and just diving straight into it. Uh, conversation. This is like literally deep, deep, deep talk is my language of love. And I know clearly it's yours too. Um, and Absolutely. Your so I'm just grateful. Thank you for this time. And thank you for joining me here. Yeah, it was great chatting with you. <laughs> more to come. I have a feeling much more to come. Get oh, ready. Absolutely. You're going to get a lot of Diana pinging you all the time. Be like, Taylor, what do you think about this? I have so many questions on this. <laughs> so, 
So oh, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much and have a great day. All righty. Bye. Bye. Thank you.